So in this last talk of the Illusion series, we're going to kind of call back to what we first started with in the very beginning and kind of wrap this up uh, really nice. We said in the very beginning that if we wanted to come up with a good definition for an illusion, uh, we could almost think of it in the way that you would think of an entertainer or a magician doing an illusion. They want to present something to you that appears to be one way, but in reality is, is something else. So they can act like they're cutting someone in half, sawing someone in half, or they're making someone disappear. And in the moment, it really seems like it's happening, but then the truth is something completely different, right? So we would say that an illusion is a believable piece of fiction, or we would say it's a believable lie. It's different than all other fiction, right? Read a piece of fiction in a book or something, and we know that it's not true from the beginning. But an illusion is different because there's no warning sign that it's not true, and depending on how realistic it is, it could really fool us, right? And we said an illusionist then is a person who has the talent or the skill or the ability to take something that is a lie but make it believable. So they have the ability to craft a story or to craft a situation in such a way that the average person would think it was true when it's not. So we said that's why an illusionist is powerful. Because if you can get somebody to believe something that isn't true, you can change the way that they behave. You can change what they do. As a matter of fact, we said that the Bible tells us that Satan is the master illusionist. The Bible says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And the word that, we, that gets translated liar there means a, a cheat, a fraud, a swindler. So Satan is the, he's the, He's a fraudster, and he's the father of fraud. And so we said that Satan then wants to get you to believe something that is not true so that he can get you to do something that is not smart. And we've been talking about lies of Satan for the last several weeks. We've said that you know Satan is a, a liar in the sense that he tries to be a drug dealer. He tries to give us a temporary high so that we'll give him something of permanent worth or permanent value. We've said that he's a discourager. He is someone that will take shame or difficult circumstances or even just take the, the uh, challenge that we're facing and make it seem overwhelming and he can make us think that it's not worth trying. We've said that he can try to take failures or, or, or problems in your past and, and somehow try to tell you that that defines who you are as a person. Uh, but today, we're going to go to the, the last lie in, in our series, and it's going to help us understand why one specific question is so hard to answer. Um, and it's, one, it's a question that's been really on my mind a lot over the last couple years, and that question is simply this, why do good people do bad things? Do you ever find yourself asking that question? Why, why do really good people sometimes do really bad things? And this question's been coming up a lot for me over the last 12 months, or I guess maybe last two years, because it seems like so many of, of people who are my heroes in the, in the Christian world, pastors and leaders that I really looked up to and revered, something would come out in the news or, in the, or, or, or some other type of story that would say, hey, maybe there's some really dark skeletons in this person's closet. As a matter of fact, uh, just even within the last couple months, I've, been, I've gotten texts from other Christian leaders and other pastors, and usually the text goes something like this. Did you hear about, and then they'll put the name of this person, and then it'll say, so tragic. And I don't even want to Google the name of the person because I know what I'm going to find out, right? I'm going to find out that this person who I've looked up to and really thought was a very good person may have done a really bad thing. And for me personally, it's very hard to answer that question. Why, do, why would somebody that I view as a really good person do a really bad thing? And I find myself saying this. I don't know if you ever say this to yourself, but I say, I didn't think they were that kind of person. Do you ever find yourself saying that? I didn't think they were that kind of person. And even inherent in the fact that I say that, I know that I'm kind of falling victim to a lie of Satan because Satan wants us to believe this lie. He wants us to believe that if you're a good person, 
you'll pretty much do the right thing. And, and, and it makes sense on a surface level that a good person should do good things and a bad person should do bad things. And that thought that we have divides our culture. We, we, we kind of now have two groups of people based off of believing this lie. Because on the one hand, if you look at a situation and you say, well, I thought that this was a good person, but they've done something that's absolutely a bad thing. I can tell you know, this is a bad thing that this person did. They must not have been a good person. I must have been wrong about them. They must be a bad person. And so that, they, that person gets written off. The person says, you know, that person doesn't deserve to be seen as a good person. They ridicule them. They may shun them or talk badly about them or, or again, just write them off. We sort of have a judgmental group of our society that says if, a, if, if somebody seemed to be a good person but they did a bad thing, they must be a bad person. But on the other hand, we have a complete other group of people that says, well, if a person that I know is a good person does something that I thought in the first place was a bad thing, then I must have been wrong. That, that must have not been a bad thing. It must be good. If I know they're a good person, I mean, this is my, you know, this is my sibling, this is my parent, this is my coworker, this is somebody that I know is a good person, then whatever they did, it must, it must not be that bad anyhow. But that only happens because we kind of fall victim to this idea that good people do good things and, and bad people do bad things. Did you know the Bible stands in direct conflict with that idea? I want to take you to a story in the Bible. It's probably a familiar story for many of you, but I want to take you to a story in the Bible that absolutely proves beyond any doubt that really good people can do really bad things. And we're going to learn a little bit about how to make sense of our own behavior when we face temptation and how to make sense of others' behavior, okay? So we're gonna go look at a story of a man named David in the Bible, king of Israel, and here's what I want you to see uh, about David being a good person. We're gonna go to the book of Acts where the Bible says that David was a man about whom God said, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now, if you've been in church for a while, this is not a new thing to you. You know that, that God said this about David. He, he was a man after his own heart. But I am going to encourage you, if you've heard that a bunch of times, to, to press the pause button, step back from it, and look at it with fresh eyes and realize what an in, incredible thing it is for God to say this about someone. To pin this badge on them to say, this is a person after, for, for God to say, this is a person after my own heart. What would you give for God to say that you're a woman after his own heart or for him to say that you're a man after his own heart? I mean, that's a big deal. God is saying David is a good person, right? And yet, if you know the story, you know that despite the fact that David was a very good person, he did a very bad thing. If we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, there's a very sad and dark story in Israel's history. The Bible says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Now, time out for a second. What it means when it says in the springtime when kings went out to war, you should know that the spring marked the end of the rainy season in the Middle East. And we're not just talking about a little rain. When it rains in the Middle East, it rains. And in, in the ancient world, the roads weren't all that wonderful to start with. And with all that rain, they would sort of wash out. And so during the rainy season, you didn't have to worry about going to battle because your enemies couldn't get to you and you couldn't get to them. It was peacetime. But then when the roads would start to firm up in spring, the army would get together and, the, and the, the leaders of the country and the king, they would all get together and they would cross those roads and they would go defend their turf and defend the country and, and fight against the enemies. And you should know that Isra the Israelites were typically outnumbered by their enemies and so pretty much every able-bodied man in Israel would get together and go fight uh, Israel's enemies. Only the guys who were absolutely necessary to keep the machinery of, the, of, of Jerusalem running would have been staying around in town. Um, and David, for year after year after year, had gone off to fight uh, every year in the spring, but for some reason this spring he doesn't do it. He sticks around. So they had a good battle. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. 
But David stayed behind in Jerusalem. You notice the Bible's trying to make sure we get this. The Bible wants us to recognize that David was supposed to be going and fighting this battle, but he stayed home in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. One more time out here. So uh, a midday afternoon in the Middle East, this should have been over early in the afternoon. And Bible scholars and translators tell us that what this means is that he got up in the evening after his, what should have been a midday rest. So this is one of those naps. You know what I'm talking about. When you take a nap and you tell your spouse, I'm just going to rest my eyes for 15 or 30 minutes, right? And then, you know, you kind of sort of zone and doze, and then you wake up a little bit, but you're not quite awake enough to get out of bed, and you zone and doze off some more, and you're kind of in and out, and by the time you really are awake, it's like 7 o'clock, and you've slept the whole afternoon away. This is what David was doing, but it was all right, because David didn't have much on his plate. All the guys were off fighting the war. There wasn't really a whole lot of domestic policy stuff that needed to be done. The country was quiet. He didn't have much on his plate. He was just lazing around the palace. And keep in mind, his soldiers are fighting this terrifying battle, but he's just sort of hanging out around the palace, taking a long nap. And when he's done with that, he goes and he takes a walk on the roof of the palace. And the Bible says that when he did that, he looked out over the city and noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, sometimes people will ask, what, what's up with Bathsheba? I mean, this is a pretty brazen thing to take a bath in public, and certainly this was a seductive behavior. She was trying to seduce David. I don't think, I don't think that for a minute. In the, in the Middle East, uh, at that time, homes would have a flat roof usually. And the reason they would have a flat roof is because in the spring and summer it would get so hot that they would use that roof as another living space uh, because it would, it would just be oppressive inside their home. And there would usually be a bath on that roof because in the spring and summer, if you tried to take a bath in your home in that kind of temperature, you would need a bath after you took your bath. So it was a normal thing to, to bathe on the roof of the house. And there was usually like a little modesty gate or a little, um, a little rail around the roof so you could couldn't see into your neighbor's roof and they couldn't see into your roof. So it was really a perfectly acceptable thing. What I'm not sure if anybody had really thought this completely through ahead of time. There was really only one spot where you would have had the vantage to have an eye line down into uh, the roof of this home and that would have been from the high roof of the palace. As a matter of fact, I think David probably had a visual line of sight into a lot of roofs, not just this one. And so he sees Bathsheba taking a bath and instead of doing what he should have done, which is immediately turn around and say, oh, I wish I hadn't seen, seen that, and gone on to um, occupy his mind with a task, something work-wise that he could focus on or make sure that he was focusing his romantic attentions on his own spouse, he decides he's going to find out about her, and he sends a servant to go find out. And when that servant returns, he makes sure that David understands this is a married woman, in case you were wondering. But David sent messengers to go get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And of course, we have no idea how into this affair Bathsheba was. Um, the Bible doesn't say, but this one thing we do know, right? We can, we can forget about how, you know, how complicit in this Bathsheba was because that's something only God knows. But we do know that David was the instigator for this deal, even though he was a good person. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message, and she let him know, I'm pregnant. Now, here's the thing. I personally believe that David, being a good person, regretted what he did after it was over. I think after he and Bathsheba slept together, he had a lot of regret in his heart. But I think he thought it was over. Because after all, he's thinking, she's not going to tell 
anybody because she doesn't want to blow up her life and blow up her marriage and all the stuff that that would entail. She's not going to say anything. And she certainly knows I'm not going to say anything because that would mess everything up for me in a huge way, cause difficulty within the country and all that. So since I'm not going to say anything, and since she's not going to say anything, it's over, it's done, you walk on, but then he gets the message that she's pregnant and the world changes. Now he's got to do something about it. It's a lot more complicated than it started out to be. So what he does is he sends the word to Joab, who's his head general, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. So keep this in mind if you're Uriah. You have no idea why you're getting sent to go see David. You're one of the king's best fighting men. And they've basically said they need somebody to go give a report of what's going on in the battlefield. And Uriah is thinking, he gets reports of what's going on in the battlefield all the time. And besides that, why don't you just send a messenger? Why are you sending one of the, you know, the Green Berets to come in and, and you know, take time off away from being on the battlefield and come in and, and give a report? But he does what he's told. He goes to David and he tells him about how the war is going. And then David tells Uriah, hey, listen, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace. I mean, David sends him a fruit basket and a bottle of wine and, and some chocolate-covered strawberries and some Kenny G CDs and anything that he can send that's going to make an ambiance. And really, because if, he, if he can get Uriah home for a night when this baby is born, nobody's going to think twice about it. Everybody's going to say how wonderful that Uriah came home for this wonderful evening of rest and relaxation, and now we have this baby on the way. What a wonderful thing. So he knows he's this close to making this whole thing go away. Only problem is he didn't think about the fact that he was dealing with a a man of greater character than he, because Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked him, what's the deal, man? He said, why, why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, listen, the Ark of the Covenant and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? Two things here. One is he's saying, my battalion is sleeping out in the open where archers are trying to impale them with arrows while they're sleeping, and then my friends are going to sleep not knowing if they're going to wake up in the morning, and you want me to go home and hang out with my wife. Now get this. He says, how could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? Do you want to, I mean, you think about something that's got to sting a little bit for David because he's basically saying, how could I stay here when, when actually both of us are supposed to be over there? He said, I would never do such a thing. David says, all right, well then stay here today and tomorrow you can go home. But he didn't let him go home the next day. The Bible says that Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. David's just thinking, maybe if I waited out long enough, maybe if I keep him around, finally somehow he'll go home. And then that didn't work, so then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. Maybe if I get this guy liquored up, Maybe that's the solution. A lot of booze. That's the plan, right? We're going to get this guy drunk. But the problem was, no matter how much booze he gave the guy, right, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. I have this picture in my head of David trying to go back up to the the roof of his palace to watch Uriah go home. He's expecting. Now, Uriah's drunk. He's been here for a while. Surely I've worn down his resistance. He's going to watch him go home. But what he sees is poor Uriah stumbling out the front of the palace gate, dropping his rucksack in front of there and just passing out. And David's thinking, this isn't going to work. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. You want to talk about a cover-up. 
And here's what gets me. I don't know if it gets you, but when you, when you think about this, and keep in mind, Uriah has to deliver his death warrant to General Joab. And, and actually, it tells you something about Uriah's character. David knows that Uriah is such a man of character, he doesn't have to worry about Uriah opening the envelope and reading what's been written in it because that's not the kind of person Uriah is. He will take that letter and deliver it right to Joab. But in that letter, do you think it's interesting that the sentence doesn't end here? I mean, you know, even, even as terrible as it is, station your eye on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back. I would almost expect that. I mean, obviously the, the, the thought is that he won't make it past that. But David is so concerned about the cover-up, he puts the punctuation mark on the end of it and says, do not come back from battle unless this guy's in a body bag. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. I don't know, my opinion is this. I truly think that David wasn't just responsible for Uriah's death. I think David's also responsible for the other guys that died with him because I think Joab was having to orchestrate this weirdness of trying to get his guys up to the front of the line and then pull a bunch of them back. And I think in the, in the attempt to stage this thing that David had asked him to stage, it wasn't just Uriah that lost his life. Other people did too. This would have been a time for David to break down in tears once he understands what he's actually done. This would have been a time for David to, to sense the weight of regret of how far he's gone from, from his character, how far he's gone from his values. But when this messenger comes to Jerusalem and gave him a complete report and he says, listen, the enemy came out against us in the open fields and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers you know, on the wall shot arrows at us and some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. This would be when David should break down and say, I can't believe what I have done in God's presence and, and to this family and I can't believe what I've done to my own people. But instead, look what he does. He crosses his arms and he says, well, you know, go tell Joab, don't be discouraged. I mean, after all, the sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. You know, next time, fight harder. Conquer the city. You know, it's the equivalent of saying, tell Joab, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. The coldness of it all. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives. And then she gave birth to a son. Now, think about this. David is, has perpetrated this terrible thing, but to the people in Israel, it will look like he is a hero. Look at this, you know, look at this amazing story of redemption. Here's this, this war widow who's gone through the terrible loss of losing her husband, but the king in his, uh, in his grace and his love has taken her into his home, and now she, you know, she is his wife, and there's this baby on the way. What a redemptive story that, that now together they will have this child. That out of this terrible tragedy, this beauty has emerged, but they think that David's the man. He's the murderer is what he is. God knows the Bible says that the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And actually, a lot of Bible scholars tell us this word displeased is very, very mild compared to what it probably should be translated. Here's the thing. God said that David was a good person, but God is also saying David has done something that is a really bad thing. The thing is, throughout the scripture, there is nothing that indicates that a good person is incapable of doing very bad things. So why do we struggle with it so much? Why do we struggle with holding those two things simultaneously? It can be a good person, but very bad behavior, a good person, but very bad things. Why do we struggle to, to let those things coexist? Well, personally, I, I think it's because we have this idea of how I should fight temptation, how you should fight temptation, about how the process works. 
We think, well, all right, temptation's gonna come my way at some point. When temptation does come, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna first consider my personal values, what's right and wrong, right? What, what, what should a Christian do in this circumstance? You know, what, what, what would the wrong thing be to do? And then I'm gonna consider the consequences. What is the end game gonna be? If I take path A, what's gonna be the end of that? If I take B, what's gonna be the end of that? And as I'm weighing those options, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really think it through from all angles, and then I'm gonna make a good decision. Now, here's what I would say. On a good day, on your best day, this may happen. But my question is, how do you do with this on a day when you're tired? On a day when you're frustrated? On a day when you're having a fight with your spouse? On a day when you have an unexpected financial burden? How are you doing on a bad day with this? Because my proposal to you would be that it is a Las Vegas gamble to expect that this is going to happen when Satan sends you a temptation because he will not send you a temptation on your good day. He's going to send you a temptation on your bad day. Now, here's an example of what I mean by that. Maybe a kind of a lighthearted example, but nonetheless. Uh, suppose that you are like me, and your doctor has told you you should lose a little bit of weight, right? My doctor told me I'm a little bit over my ideal weight, and he gave me some advice on how I can, uh, you know, adjust that and work on my diet and so forth. And so imagine that you're like me, you have to diet some, and the doctor's giving you instructions, and you've followed those instructions for five or six hours so far, and you're doing well, you haven't eaten anything that, the, that he says you can't, you know? But it's been a rough day, you know, you, you were at work and somebody called you on the carpet for something that wasn't even your fault and you did have one of those little spats with your, with your wife or with your husband and then, you know, the car had, a, had something break down and that was, you know, both a financial and a time thing, both of them just not something that you'd expected and, you know, one of the pipes between the main floor and the basement burst and so now you have an indoor shower directly over your favorite 60-inch screen TV, right? And then your son calls from MIT and says he's decided to give up his scholarship to pursue his dream of professional fantasy football. Um, and in the middle of all this, it's 11.30 at night and you decide to get up and get a midnight snack because let's face it, there is nothing more spiritual and sanctified than a midnight snack. That is the best kind of food there is. Whatever it is, at midnight, there's just something special about it. So you go to the kitchen to get your midnight snack. It's been a rough day, but you're trying to follow your diet and you see as you open the refrigerator, the celery. <laughs> which your doctor told you to buy. You would never have bought it, but your doctor told you to buy it because he said, look, you can eat sensible meals, but be careful about your snacking because that's where the calories really come in. If you really must snack, buy celery. It's God's green cardboard. There's nothing, that's, there's no sugar in it. There's no calories, right? It's just something crunchy to keep your, your face occupied and make you think that you're eating, right? So you've got the celery there and you know that's probably what you should eat, but then right next to it, your spouse brought home from the restaurant, restaurant cake. It's in the little to-go box, which makes it even more special. It's the, the, the three-layer chocolate cake that's sitting there. And yes, the celery is looking at you and calling out to you saying, your doctor said to eat this, but the chocolate cake is calling out to you saying, you know you want me. Maybe on a good day, you're going to go for the celery. But I don't know if you're like me. On a bad day, I'm going for the chocolate cake. Well, the thing about it is, I, I feel that. Um, so the thing about it is, when it's the celery and chocolate cake decisions of life, maybe it's not as critical, but when it's, when it's the big decisions of life, it's a big, big deal. So I just, I want to I 
take you to the, the crux of this, of, of, of this whole talk, the, the hinge of this talk, and something that my dad and I talked about some time ago because I was studying the science of temptation because believe it or not, there's a very robust science of, of how people battle temptation uh, and, and in psychology and sociology, we've got a lot of really great data to help us understand it. And I was talking to dad about how it integrates so beautifully with what the Bible teaches. And I wanna show you this fact because I think, it will, I, I think it will so help us get in our heads, how is it feasible that a person could be a good person and do bad things? And, and here's what I wanted to tell you, your character, or, or you could use the term willpower, right? Or character, willpower, you can use them interchangeably. The kind of person you are, your ability to make decisions consistent with your values based only on the fact that these are your values and you're gonna try to use the power of your mind to pick the right option, right? Your character is your fourth line of defense in fighting temptation, not your first and not your only line of defense. Do you know why Satan tells us that a good person is always gonna do the right thing? is because he wants us focused on our character because it's, it's so believable. It's so believable to think that our character will override our circumstances. Whatever temptation gets thrown my way, the kind of person I am, that's what's gonna override it. I've had so many conversations with people that come in my office for life or marriage coaching and they're, they're saying, you know what, I know, I'm, I, I know I'm doing something that's probably not wise, but I, you shouldn't worry about me stepping across any lines because I'm not that kind of person. And in saying that, they've already fallen victim to Satan's lie that if I'm a good person, I'm not gonna cross lines just because I have willpower, just because I have character. No, that's the fourth line of defense. There's three way more important forces than your character or your willpower, and we're gonna talk about those three. And what's interesting is the Bible emphasizes all three of these other things. Satan wants to redirect our attention away from it, but we're gonna focus on it in the time that we have left this, this morning. Three other things that you have besides your character and besides your willpower that's gonna help you fight temptation, right? So the first one is this, and we said, yes, of course, Willpower, character, it does matter, but it's number four on the list. Number three is the power of situations. Yes, your character is powerful, but more powerful than your character is the situation you put yourself in. The environment that you decide to put yourself in and the people you decide to put yourself around are very, very powerful. And all of us have at least some story in our history that reminds us that even though we might feel a certain way, our values might be a certain way, we got caught up in an environment or we got caught up around people and we started acting in, in, in a, uh, the opposite way of our values. We started acting apart from our values because we got caught up in something. Think about David's situation. His situation should have been, he should have been in the, with his army on the battlefield. But instead, he picked to be back home in Jerusalem. And I, I'm not trying to be overly blunt here or, or not genteel, but do keep in mind that David has decided to spend the, the springtime in a, a, a city that is full of women whose husbands are away fighting and who miss their husbands. That's not smart. On top of that, he's decided to stay in Jerusalem when he has nearly nothing to do. And for those people like me who study sexual acting out within relationships, and what are the earmarks? How, how do you know somebody's getting way too close to, to stepping across a line and getting into an affair or something like that? For men especially, boredom, it almost always tops the list. Almost always tops the list. Listen, guys, especially, men should, all antenna up here. Listen, if you don't have anything that you're passionate about and that your energy is invested in, if you don't have anything on your radar screen, Satan will be happy to give you something to put on your radar screen that will keep you occupied. David is not where he should be. He's home, he's bored, and now he's walking around on the roof of his palace. I don't know if he recognized what the risk was of doing that, but that's not a good situation. Other thing is, and this is another one, guys, 
that we need to watch out for. He's alone. He's got nobody there who's, in a, who, who's, who's gonna hold him accountable. I personally think if David was walking around on the roof with one of his advisors or someone else, I don't think he would have stood there gawking at a naked lady because I think he would have felt embarrassed to do that and he would have recognized he was doing something wrong and somebody was watching him do something wrong. But he was by himself. Situations are very, very, very powerful, more so than most of us give them credit. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I hear from people that I just, my, it just blows my mental circuits when people tell me, I can be around it without getting into it. You know, I, I, it's totally fine for me to be in this environment even though everybody else around me is doing this because I don't have to do it because I'm my own person. I'm not that kind of person. I can choose what I do. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Maybe you can be around it without getting into it, but is it worth the risk? Because situations are powerful. They can be more powerful than our character. As a matter of fact, if we, could take a, if we could take a verse out of the New Testament and show it to David at this moment in his life, we might show him 1 Corinthians 6 where the Bible says run from sexual sin. Notice the Bible doesn't say resist sexual sin. Notice the Bible doesn't you know, pull a Nancy Reagan, just say no. The Bible says just get out of there. Just run away as fast as you can. Run as, run as far and as fast away as you can from what? From that dangerous situation. The Bible says in Ephesians that we need to be careful how we live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most, very important here, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. We need to figure out what's right in this situation. When I was 16, I was starting to put in more and more part-time hours, and I was starting to work around um, you know, some, some friends of mine. I was starting to make work friends that had some bad habits and, and were getting into some things that my parents certainly were hoping I wouldn't get into. And yet, at that age, at 16, they knew they couldn't come down too hard on me because I was becoming an adult, and so they were wanting to help coach me up. And by the way, this is wise, a wise thing to do, parents, is to help your kids understand the wise thing to do rather than to try to pick the wise choice for them. But at that age, at 16, my dad was trying to help me understand the wise thing to do. And I was, I was giving him some pushback because I wanted to participate in a, in a, I think it was a party or something that I wanted to go to. My, my mind, it's kind of vague now. But, but it was very clear that it was not going to be the kind of environment that was really a, a good environment. And I remembered asking my dad, I said, listen, tell me, what is so wrong about this? What is so wrong about hanging out with this person? What is so wrong about going to this event? And you know what my dad said? He, he, said, he said something very profound that stayed with me all these years. He said, instead of asking what's so wrong about it, why don't we ask what's so right about it? If as a God follower, our expectation from Ephesians is that we're gonna make the most of every opportunity, then we shouldn't spend our time trying to find out what's gonna disqualify this activity from my life. We should be saying what, what's gonna qualify it. The bar should be set very high. The bar should be set high for the places that we go, and the bar should be set very high for the people that we engage with, because situations are important. Okay, so we said character is important, but it's low on the list. Situations, there's a lot of power in situations. Number two on the list, right, is the power of plans. One of the reasons that I think David gave into this sin and really ended up in a bad scenario that, that really ruined a great portion of the rest of his life is that I don't think he had a plan for what he was gonna do if this sort of situation came up. And by the time he was really dealing with it, it was, it was too late. I mean, but, but I want you to think about this for a minute and pull back and, and, and think about this kind of from an objective viewpoint. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. If we could just rewrite the story from here on, it would be okay. If David had had a plan for how to handle this the right way, the whole thing could be different. 
I truly believe that the reason that he sent someone to find out who she was is there was a vacuum where a good plan should have been. I want to talk to you about two kinds of plans. If you're taking notes, I want to talk to you about two kinds of plans that you absolutely should have in your life when it comes to temptation. And, and, and one is a proactive plan. You should definitely have a proactive plan when it comes to temptation, and it looks like this. Because there's a real risk of, you know, fill in the blank, I'm going to, and then fill in that blank. Because there's a real risk of getting involved with doing drugs, I'm going to quit hanging out with my friends who do drugs. Because there's a real risk of running into pornography on the internet, I'm going to install a quality filter on my phone and on my computer. Because there's a real risk of getting involved in some sort of financial scam, I'm not going to hang out with this person that keeps trying to you know, get me hooked on a get-rich-quick scheme. For all of us, at some point, we've got to be ready to put a firewall between us and the danger. right? Because we need to, we need to be able to look ahead a little bit and see that. The Bible says in Proverbs that a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. It's the simpleton that goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Within the last, I don't know, a couple few years of my work as a couples coach, I keep hearing about an app. Uh, a, a social media app keeps coming up in our, uh, in our discussions. And, and I'm not going to tell you the name of it, but if you're familiar with it, you'll know pretty quickly what I'm talking about. There's an app out there where you can message someone or send a photo to someone, and within a few seconds or a few moments, that supposedly disappears from cyberspace and, and ceases to exist, right? Um, and I should tell you, and hopefully this won't make you hate me forever, I am absolutely ardently um, a, a, not a fan of this app. I, I'm, I've seen it do too much destruction within families, and, and I, I don't like this app at all. But I'll usually be talking to one spouse who feels that way and doesn't want their spouse using the app, and the other spouse who's saying, I can be around it without getting into it. Sure, a lot of people use this app for a lot of things that aren't good, but I can use it for good things, and there's no reason why you should assume that something bad is going to happen. After all, I'm a good person. Swell. But it's not enough to say that if the right temptation comes along on the right day, since this is a platform that allows for things that are easily on the dark side with low transparency, you got to wonder, should we, should we go back to this point where we would say, because there's a risk of something, I'm going to delete this app off of my phone. See, that would be foreseeing danger and taking precautions. You say, well, Jonathan, I don't know about that because after all, there's so many good things you can do with that app. See, I'm just not buying it. I don't know what the deal is these days. I, you know, I think we've, we've really gotten into this zone of if we can have something technologically, we think we should have it. If we, if we can do something with technology, we think we, it, we absolutely should make sure that we have that, that at our fingertips. I see five-year-olds walking around with smartphones, and I'm not trying to insult you if your five-year-old has a smartphone. Maybe you have a good reason for it, but I have to tell you, it concerns me a bit because the thing is, I think when it comes to technology, we should be asking the question, does the benefit far outweigh the risk? And if the benefit doesn't far outweigh the risk, we ought to really rethink that. I'm thinking we give a five-year-old a, a very powerful personal computer with access to the internet and say, go for it. And a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. There's another kind of plan. We'll call that reactive plans. Now, if you're in the business world and you hear business seminars, you know usually when we talk about proactive and reactive, we, we're saying that reactive is bad and proactive is good. In this case, you need both and both are good. right? A reactive plan says this. If fill in the blank ever happens, I'll and fill in that blank. See, David should have had a plan. If at some point I see a woman that's not my wife that's naked, I'm going to do this. 
I'm going to turn around. I'm going to get. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I don't continue to look at that. I'm going to make sure that I involve my mind with a, with some other task so that I can distract myself from continuing to think about something that's tempting. That's tempting. He should have had a plan, but I don't think he had a plan. I'm talking to some guys in this room, and you're convinced that because um, you know because you're not Brad Pitt, you're convinced that no woman is ever going to try to come on to you. You know, you're convinced that your marriage is totally safe because no other woman would ever try to cross a line with you. And I, I want to tell you, Satan paints targets on people who don't have plans because it'll be too late if it comes and you, you don't have some sort of idea of what you're going to do. I'm talking to a lady in here who th- doesn't think that any guy would cross a line with you because you just don't think that you would be that attractive to somebody else. And so you're thinking, I don't have plans for what would happen if somebody came on to me because I don't think it's ever going to happen. Let me tell you, Satan looks for people who don't have plans. Listen, the way to fight temptation, or at least one of the most important ways, is to decide how you will handle temptation before it happens. All right, I only have a few minutes left, but we are now to the number one thing. This is the number one way that you fight temptation. It's not just number one, it's, it's way out in front of the others. So we said, yes, it's true, your character is important, your situation's very powerful, plan's very powerful, but the number one thing is the power of habit. Power of habit. Because when you're having a bad day, you will fall back on the thing that you normally do. In every temptation, so let's just break this down for just a second so that we're really clear on what we're talking about here. In every temptation, there is a natural tension. And if this tension didn't exist, it wouldn't be a temptation. There is a natural tension between the wise thing and the wanted thing. Right? There's, there's one course of action that would be the wise choice, and there's one course of action that you really want. I mean, let's just go back to the refrigerator. The celery is definitely the wise thing, but let's face it, the cake is gonna be the wanted thing. There's a tension in the refrigerator between the cake and the celery, right? And you feel that as you start the sweat beads on your forehead, the diet and the cake, and it's just back and forth, right? But there is that tension. That is what temptation is all about. But here's the thing. Most of us in this room would do anything that we could if we could take our self-discipline up a notch because we know that self-disciplined people are more successful in life, They have better family lives. They have better relationships. And most of us would do anything we could at whatever level of self-discipline that we're at to take it up a notch. And you want to know, self-discipline is nothing more than this. It is simply the personal habit of choosing the wise thing over the wanted thing. You say, well, now, wait a minute, Jonathan. Isn't this basically what we've been talking about the whole time? No, this isn't, this isn't a capsule, right? Because we're talking about what you do every day on a daily basis in the small decisions of your life. My question to you is, in the small, everyday decisions of your life, do you do the wise thing or do you do the wanted thing? Because whatever you build that habit muscle of doing, that's what's gonna determine what happens when the big temptation comes your way. Did you know in, in social sciences, in the psychology world especially, what we know is that if you are in the habit of doing the wise thing instead of the wanted thing in some areas of your life, once you really get exercised in doing that, it is going to naturally spill over into other areas of your life where you're not even trying to be self-disciplined. It's just going to creep over. Self-discipline spills over, but a lack of self-discipline spills over. So if you're used to not telling yourself no and you're used to doing the wanted thing instead of the wise thing in a bunch of areas of your life, eventually that's going to spill over into other areas of your life where you don't intend it to. See, the key is, in the areas that you can, you need to be in the habit of doing the wise thing instead of the wanted thing, because that will determine what the default will be that bad day when Satan sends a temptation your way. 
What does the Bible say about this? The Bible says, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by what? By doing good. And this word doing here means by habitually doing good. Do the wise thing and do it as a force of habit. And in doing that, you do something that very few people can really lay claim to, which is conquering evil. When Satan sends evil your direction, you conquered it because you were in the habit of doing the wise thing. My time is up, basically. I have two minutes. So I think I'd like to finish the talk out this way. There is a cost in Satan convincing us that a good person's always gonna do the right thing, and one of those costs is dividing society into people who feel like they have to excuse the behavior of anybody that they believe is a good person. Or on the other, other side, there's a cost in people being judgmental and believing that anybody who does something wrong should be labeled as bad, but there's a personal cost too. Because there's not a person in this room, including yours truly, that doesn't have some bad things on their rap sheet. If I look deep in my heart, I know there's some bad things there. I know there's some bad things in my history, just as would be the case for you. And Satan likes to creep up next to God's children and say, you know what? A good person wouldn't think something like that. A good person wouldn't do something like that. You're not a good person, you're a bad person. There's got to be a part of us within that says, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that a good person can do bad things. I just got to work on my plans. I just got to work on my situations. And I got to work on my habits. But we need to tell Satan to take a hike. Because we can be a, a God follower and struggle. We can be a God follower and do bad things. But you know what's beautiful about this? By realizing that that's what God says, we can know the truth about ourselves and we can say the truth about our behavior. I don't have to call everything that I do good because that's not how I know I'm a good person. At the end of the day, I can be real about myself in front of God and I can say, God, I've done bad things, but I'm trying to be a person that follows you and I know that you can help me. As a matter of fact, you know how I know, you know, how I know that God can help me? Because the Bible says so. In Hebrews, the Bible says, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If I'm wanting to work on my situations, if I'm wanting to work on my habits and my plans, the Bible says Jesus is ready to help me. So my question for you is, where are you gonna start? What's, what's the area that you need to work on? All of us have some. Maybe you need to think about situations today. Maybe you need to decide the kinds of places you're not gonna go anymore, the kinds of people that are not a good fit for you. Or you need to think about some good situations. Where are some good, good environments for me and some good people to be around? Maybe you need to be thinking about some proactive and reactive plans. Maybe some internet filters should get installed today. Maybe it's about habits. How do I start making the wise choice in the everyday, so that when the big temptation comes, I'll be ready for it. And the Bible says Jesus is willing to help us along that journey. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this series where we've been able to talk about your truth in the middle of sometimes a confusing world. Help, Father, uh, help us to understand what is real and what is not real. Help us to recognize Satan's lies when they come our way. Help us to claim your truth and to live in it. And we ask that you dismiss us with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this week.